Is anyone old enough to remember, I think it might have been 90s, but possibly 80s, there was a song called, What Have You Done For Me Lately? Ding, 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 ding. Does anyone know that? Oh, what a relief. See, if Brendan was here, he knows every song ever written, and so I know he would have kind of said, yeah, I know that one. But uh, that, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, what has God done for you lately? If somebody to ask you that, what would your answer be? What has God done for you lately? Perhaps this is the single most important question you can be asked. Maybe not the lately part, but over all time, what has God done for you? Um, knowing the answer to that is the most important knowledge that you can possess. It's life-changing. Just stopping to think about that for a moment, which is why we do communion every week, stopping to think about what God has done for me changes everything about my life and can change everything about yours. And we're going to um, unpack just for a while today as we reflect on God's Word together, um, just how that question, asking it of yourself regularly, asking it of others, can make a massive difference in your life and in your witness for God's kingdom. But just to set the scene a little bit before we dive into that, uh, throughout October, now my clicker's not doing anything at the moment, so I'm going to um, pester the guys in the booth to keep up with me. Throughout October, we were uh, doing a series called Rewinding Romans. And we started at chapter 16, and in chapter 16, we saw this beautiful picture of church community where God was very much at work among them. Um, and Paul knew some of the people who were there, um, others uh, he knew only by reputation, and he wrote a letter commending the people that he knew and celebrating the fact that God had called them to be a body together. But as we rewound back through the letter a little bit, we saw that Paul needed to address some issues that God had uniquely equipped him to be able to address. Uh, see, Paul was a Jewish uh, man and he was fiercely patriotic. His identity was very much rooted in his national identity as uh, a descendant of Abraham. That was very, very important to him. But God had chosen him to be a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles, people who did not share his cultural heritage. And so he had to apply his mind to how does it how do I take the story of God, which I have kind of been immersed in from my infancy, and apply that and tell that story um, and what Jesus has done for all humanity to people who haven't had the same heritage as me? And so his special contribution in writing to the church in Rome was to, to bless them with this understanding of what is it like to be a Jew who understands where Gentiles are coming from and to be able to help Gentiles understand where Jews are coming from so that together we can live in one harmonious family so that together we can do all the things that God has in, uh, uh, planned for his people to do. Now, Paul knew that this understanding of uh, how Jews and Gentiles live together in the church of God, how that all works, he knew that that wasn't the only thing they needed. They needed much more than that. But in chapter 16, he says, you've got a whole bunch of people there who are really gifted in a whole bunch of different ways. He knew he didn't have to do everything, but he needed to be God's ambassador and his spokesman on this particular topic. Uh, so the, the letter to the Romans, um, if you're familiar and if you were here during that, uh, during that series, uh, Paul wrote it because he's planning to visit Rome and he wants to go from Rome to Spain and he's hoping to have a great time with the Christians in Rome and to kind of introduce himself in advance and he's hoping that they will then send him on to Spain. But in the sovereignty of God, the timing of both Paul's letter and his visit was amazing. 
because uh, as we talked about uh, several weeks ago, uh, the Emperor Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome and then when Claudius died, around five years later, they'd come back and the church in Rome had changed a lot in, in that period of time when all the Jews were absent and the Jews are trying to figure out, well, how do we fit? Where do we, where's our place in the church? And a lot of things are happening here that we're not comfortable with. Things have changed and, and we're not sure that they should have changed. We'd like them to be what they used to be and as a community, they're having to negotiate their way through these very tricky conversations. Uh, conversations that have a lot of biblical um, foundation to them and you know how does that law apply to this situation how does that principle apply in our lives and in our church in our situation and some of those conversations because they mean so much to people are tricky and awkward and in some cases heated and that's exactly where Paul is an expert so the fact that Paul is planning to visit the fact that he's written this letter to them is so wonderfully timely in the sovereignty of God. And that's something for us to keep in mind as well. You know, when, when we have interactions with people, um, sometimes we're not aware, I'm actually going to change that, most of the time we are not aware of God's sovereignty in timing those interactions where what we have to bring is exactly what that person needs in that moment. Have you ever experienced that? We see it time and time and time again in the Bible. We see it time and time again in our own experience of life where God in his sovereignty brings along somebody who quite unaware shares something of what's going on in their life, maybe what God's done for them or things that he's taught them, um, or they become aware of our need and they're able to speak into it in a way which is just right. And that's exactly what we see happening in the letter of Romans. And we're going to spend a bit of time having a, a close look at that today. We love God because God first loved us. Yes, somebody had it. Um, and that's what, as we rewound from chapter 16 through to chapter 12, we discovered. As Paul in chapters 12 to 16 writes very practically about how we can love God and how we can love others, he says basically at the beginning of that section, all of this is in view of God's mercy. Because what God has done for us, this is how um, we are called to live. And so we're going to spend today, and if you thought rewinding backwards from chapter 16 to chapter 12 was, was weird, today we're going to cover chapters 1 to 11 all in one hit. All right? And what we're going to do is get an outline of that, because the way Paul tells his story is really, really interesting. Um, as we tune into, if we could have um, Romans 1 verses 1 to 4 on the board, thanks Hamish. As we tune into the way that Paul begins this letter um, and introduces himself, uh, I want to contrast it to the way Paul finishes the letter. This is how the letter begins. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is introducing himself. Who is he? Well, he's a servant of Jesus and he's been called to be an apostle, an ambassador of Jesus to the world. Um, and what is he meant to be conveying to them? What's the message that he brings? Uh, it's the gospel of God. Who owns the story? God does. Who's been writing the story in history? God has. Who's the one who revealed parts of the story to his prophets at different times so that people would have a, an understanding of what God was intending to do? God's been doing that. So this is God's story and God has put, called Paul to be a messenger or an ambassador of that. Now if we could flick to the end of the letter, thanks Hamish, in chapter 16 and verses 25 to 27 we read these words. 
Now to him who's able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. See, Paul closes his letter in a very similar way to the way he opens his letter. It's all about the gospel. It's all about what God does in the gospel to save people and to transform their lives. But there's an interesting difference in the way Paul describes the gospel in chapter 16 to the way he describes it in chapter 1. You and I are part of the story, as he talks about in both of those chapters, that God has been writing from before the creation of the world. It's a story that is centered on Jesus. It's a story told in the promises that were given before Jesus's birth and the proclamation following Jesus' birth of what his birth, his death, his resurrection and his return means to us and how it changes our lives. Everything in the Old Testament is building up to the life of Christ. Everything in the New Testament is built upon the life of Christ. It is the good news about Jesus. That's what the gospel is. But you might notice And it's very, very easy to miss that the way you tell the story isn't necessarily the same every single time you tell it. Because it's a huge story. Everything that God has been doing in history to lead up to Jesus, everything since the life of Jesus that is based on his life, his death, his resurrection, there's a lot to that. The implications are massive. It's like that diamond that you look at. It's got so many different facets and the way that the light gleams off them, it's all beautiful and it's all wonderful and it's all part of the one thing. But sometimes you want to look at it from different angles and see different aspects to it. That's what the gospel is like. And where in chapter 1, Paul says, I'm an ambassador. I'm one ambassador of the gospel of God, that big story. In chapter 16, he kind of switches that around a little bit and he says, now God, the author of this big story, is able to establish you by my gospel. Not God's gospel anymore, by my gospel. In other words, the way that I've told the story, which is not the same way that Peter told the story, it's not the same way that Jesus told the story, it's not the same way that Mark and Luke and John wrote their gospels and so on. Uh, The way I've told the story, God is able to take that and establish you with that. But you notice he he doesn't assume that his telling of the gospel is the only telling they need. Because he says there, uh, he's able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writing. So he acknowledges that there are other people's tellings of the gospel that are also important and that God will also use to establish people and help them to be mature and complete as followers of Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier, in chapter 16, he lists a whole bunch of people who all know the gospel really well and can share that gospel with one another and help each other in the church to be mature and complete. So what is the significance of that to us? Well, As I mentioned earlier, God was exercising his sovereignty in the fact that Paul, because of his own plans to go and share the gospel in Spain, has has wanted to write to introduce himself and to um, prepare the way to go and launch from Rome to this ministry in Spain. And the timing of that was brilliant because those Romans at that point in history needed some help in figuring out how Jews and Gentiles could live together peacefully to work out their different perspectives on what the gospel means for them and to be one unified 
body of believers. And so I'm going to give you a really quick overview of the letter uh, from chapters 1 to 11 as Paul describes the gospel. And you'll see that the way he tells the story is uniquely and sovereignly planned by God to suit exactly the way they needed to hear the story in their particular circumstance. So in chapter 1, and if you want to, feel free to flick through your Bibles and to read some of the phrases um, as I give you kind of the big picture of what's going on. Uh, we're not going to read through the whole thing and kind of unpack it because that's, uh, in some cases, a lifetime's worth of work. In chapter 1, Paul describes how all the nations of the earth descended into spiritual ignorance through long histories of rejecting God and turning away from God, sometimes in small steps, sometimes in big steps. And if you go through and read the story of the Old Testament, you see how that played out in its story form. Uh, so that all the nations of the earth have descended into spiritual ignorance. People don't know God. Um, and because of that spiritual ignorance, there is moral corruption. We don't live in the way that God designed us to live. So all people everywhere are in need of rescue. And God is justly angry about what we have done with the world he created and the opportunity that he gave us. But then in chapters 2 to 4, Paul, very much aware that the Jews might hear this and say, yes, those Gentiles are very much like that. We, however, have God's laws and we haven't become ignorant and we haven't become corrupt. We've stayed true. So in chapters 2 to 4, he unpacks that and he, in a sense, turns the tables and he says, yes, God's law is very, very good. And yes, you have not gone down the same path of ignorance that many of the nations around you have trodden. Yet that knowledge actually condemns you, it doesn't justify you. It doesn't give you the uh, excuse to point your finger at others. You know that brilliant saying, and somebody repeated it to, to me just recently, you know, whenever you point the finger at somebody else, you've got those fingers pointing back at you. That's what Paul is effectively saying to the Romans. Hey, you're applying the law to the people out there and saying, you don't know God and you don't live in the way that pleases him. And Paul's saying, actually, what the law is really doing is it's exposing the fact that even though you do know God, and God has very graciously kept calling you guys back every time you rejected him. He's disciplined you. He's brought you back. He's preserved a remnant. He's made sure that he's preserved this one nation of people. But yet that's not because of you being so great. That's because he's been faithful. Um, and the fact that you're even part of this, this chosen community of people, it was never based on how well you did at obeying God. It was always based on God's promises and his own faithfulness, and whether or not people would receive those promises, such as Abraham, through faith or not. So then in chapters 5 to 8, Paul brings the focus back to all humanity needing a fresh start. Since Adam's disobedience made us all slaves to sin. So he's digressed onto the, the journey of the Jews. Now he's gone back to all humanity and talks about Adam and how every single human being is a descendant of the fall. We all need rescuing. No matter whether we are Jews or Gentiles, we're in the same condition. Is there an advantage to being a Jew? Yeah, you know more about God than those who don't have his laws, who don't see the goodness of his ways, yet you still need rescuing just as much. We've been liberated through Christ to now fulfill the law, to love God and love others the way he designed us to. The law was good, but it wasn't enough on its own. In fact, it just highlighted our guilt. But those who receive new life in Jesus also receive the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, God's laws, instead of being something we apply externally and often to other people more than to ourselves, now those laws are written on our hearts and we have a desire to do what is good and godly. 
we have an unbreakable connection with God. And so we know no circumstances will ever pull us away from God's good plans for us. No circumstances will ever get in the way of God's good story being written in our lives. And then finally, in chapters 9 to 11, Paul again goes back to the Jews, knowing that their story is unique and he needs to spend a little bit more time dealing with it. Not only for Jewish people to understand where they are at in terms of the new thing that God's doing in Jesus, but also for Gentile believers to understand, okay, so this is how we fit together uh, as one community. And in chapters 9 to 11, he deals with the question of what happens to those Jews who kept hold of the law but haven't uh, taken hold of Jesus? Well, what's their fate? And he proves in chapters 9 to 11 that being part of God's kingdom has never been about having the law or being descended biologically from Abraham. Um, it's always been about receiving through faith the promises that God was fulfilling. Those Jews who have rejected Jesus are a bit like a branch that's been snapped off a tree. Um, they're missing out on the life that is, now, that is flowing through that tree. Um, they are dead, spiritually dead. But Paul also says, for you Gentiles who have received Jesus, it's like you've been grafted into this chosen people. You've been grafted into this tree. And where once your story was basically the story of the culture that you grew up in, now you're a part of something that God's been doing since the very beginning of the world. And you have this wonderful heritage. So all of those things that happen in the Old Testament, yes, ethnically, biologically, that's not your heritage, but spiritually, you inherit all of those things that God has been doing right through history. You're now a part of this chosen community but he says don't get arrogant though and think about those Jews who have rejected Jesus as though you're better than them because otherwise you'll be repeating the exact same error that they fell into um, instead Paul believes and we believe based on everything that Jesus has said and the promises of the Old Testament that many of those Jews will actually be grafted back in a time will come where they will see the reality of who Jesus is and they will actually decide to receive through faith the gift of the Messiah that they've been promised for all those centuries so that's essentially the gospel story in the way Paul tells it and as you've heard that very very brief outline of the way he tells the gospel you can see that God's mission in calling Paul to be a Jewish messenger to Gentile people is beautifully expressed in the way he describes the big story of what God is doing in the world to save humanity. Those elements of how Jews and Gentiles connect with one another and how they fit into the story are really prominent in the way Paul tells the story as he writes to the church in Rome. Why? Because that was Paul's particular mission that God had given him. Interestingly, if you go <clears throat> pardon me, to Acts chapter 17, where Paul is now speaking in this particular context to purely Greek philosophers and, and thinkers and, and people who are immersed in that culture, he doesn't include any of that part of the story where it's about Jews and Gentiles becoming this new community of faith. He doesn't emphasise that at all because he knows for those people he's speaking to, it's simply not an issue. He speaks to them about ignorance versus wisdom which is what they're very very interested in um, and he speaks to them about ret uh, retaining or regaining the knowledge of God so he tells the gospel in a very different way when he's in a different circumstance or look at Jesus when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman um, again ethnicity and culture is a big deal there but the way Jesus tells the story because the Samaritans have a very different history to most Gentiles is very different in that situation or what about when Jesus comes across the woman that is uh, in the process of uh, being stoned for adultery? The way he demonstrates the gospel in that situation, again, very, very different. 
Um, You look at the way Luke describes the gospel as he tells the story of Jesus' life and you compare it to Matthew or Mark or John, they're all so different. So I hope you're getting that big picture. If the message, the story of what God is doing in the world to save us is huge and it's beautiful, but every person who is an ambassador of that gospel, including you and including me, we're going to tell it in a different way. In a way that suits who God has made us to be and what our experience of God has been. And in a way that suits the people that God is calling us to be a representative of him too. That's how God's designed the church to work. And that's why in this church, when uh, you're, you're a part of our church community, we don't just give you a particular gospel outline like the two ways to live or the bridge to life or, or any of those sorts of things. So just memorise that and tell that to everybody you know. Because the gospel is bigger and more wonderful than that. Those outlines, they're great. I love the fact that we have them and they're really, really helpful. But they're like that Swiss Army knife. In certain situations, uh, they can be useful. In other situations, you'll use different tools. Um, The point is, how are you going at feeling confident in what God has done in your life and knowing that what God's done in your life, how he's shaped you, those convictions he's nurtured in you, those experiences you've had with him, the things that capture your heart, do you realise how important that is in shaping how you then go and interact with others? Um, You're not supposed to share the gospel the way I do it. You're supposed to do it the way God's called you to do it and equipped you to do it. Um, And do you trust in the sovereignty of God that he will connect you with the people who need to hear the gospel in the way that you uniquely communicate it? Even with Carolyn and I, uh, in the way that we we tell the gospel, I'm a visual learner, so if there's any chance of a whiteboard into the vicinity, I'll grab something, I'll say, it's kind of like this, you know, draw, squiggle, and and so so on. Carolyn's a fantastic listener. She'll tune into the emotion of where people are at at the moment and reflect something of the goodness of God in their journey. Um, and both are so needed and necessary. But there are only two examples out of millions of possibilities of different ways that people share the gospel. I wonder what that looks like for you. Can we skip forward, Hamish, to... Oh, no, it's Nicole there. <laughs> Once the head came up, it was easy to see. Can we skip forward to the last couple of slides about uh, how has God been good to you? How has God been good to you? This is, again, as I mentioned right at the start, um, knowing how God has been good to you is actually not only going to change your experience of life, it's also going to give you a capacity, just as Paul did for the Romans, to share the goodness of God in the lives of others. So the very first thing uh, I want to point out on that is that loving God begins with realising that you are loved by God. Loving God begins with realising how you've been loved by God. Now, that is true in what Jesus has done in his death, his resurrection, the promise of his returns. It's true in all of the story of the Bible. And the better you know the story, and the more that it just flowers within your heart and your soul and and kind of wants to bubble out of you, uh, the better it is. But it's not limited to the biblical story. The stuff that God has done in your life, that often you see because you know the Bible story well, that's an important part of that as well. Recognising how you are loved by God is really, really important. So what's that look like for you lately? How's God been showing his love for you? If you're like me, you can get uh, very caught up in what you are doing for God or you can get very caught up in the problems you are facing and asking God to help you with. But just take a moment to step back and uh, thinking about our preparation for Christmas, for example, wouldn't it be great if every day between now and Christmas, over the next six weeks or so, 
that every morning as we got up, remember that uh, phrase in the Old Testament, his mercies are new every morning. Wouldn't it be great if we got up and said, God, thank you for... And I wonder what would go on in your soul and how your day would be different if you began it with thanksgiving for how God's mercies have been expressed in your life. Remember before Paul said anything to the Romans about how to live together and how to love God and do what they've been called to do, he said, in view of God's mercy. Don't start with what you're to do. Start with the mercies of God. What could that look like for you? Um, recently there was um, the, all the hype about the $160 million Powerball. Did you guys tune into that? Um, and uh, so, of course, I'm thinking, you know, over the course of all that period, how would life be different if, if you know, just one Powerball... I'm not out of here, but, you know, just one Powerball, how would that, how would that change things? Um, and, you, and you begin to think, man, money would change so much. And then, uh, hopefully, if um, the Holy Spirit kind of get, gets his uh, voice of conviction through to you, you go, actually, come to think of it, God has already done so much for me. Uh, and I, I was rehearsing back some of the, the ways God's provided financially over the years. I'm just astounded by his generosity. Um, I don't need a Powerball because God is already so good. Um, and to stop and think about that for a while takes the stress because we're facing some challenging um, situations where you know, bills come in at terrible times and, and you, you get all angsty about it. But when you remember the generosity of God... The power of Satan to cause anxiety and, and frustration and obsession um, and all that kind of stuff just dissipates. Different. What, what is reflecting on the mercies of God in your life going to look, look like? To remember how blessed you are. Maybe apply that to the biggest problem you're facing and see how that changes in the view of the mercies of God. But the second thing uh, that's uh, good to reflect on when it comes to how has God been good to you is as uh, we reflected on in Paul's journey, it wasn't just for Paul. Um, as he went through his own journey of seeing how Jesus changed everything, that was a flow-on effect to other people. So please don't underestimate how sharing the stuff that's going on in your own life will be a blessing to others. But how do you do that? Um, let's just say that you're full to overflowing with the goodness of God and, uh, and you want to go and share that with somebody. You've got no idea what's going on in their life at the moment. So how do you start that conversation where you just get to, to share the way that uh, God has designed you to share and the way that Paul is sharing with the, the Romans? That's a good question. Glad, glad, you, glad you asked that one. Um, what's one of the most common greetings that we do in our culture? Jamie, how you doing? Uh, see, we just started right there. Um, now, um, that, that was an often as, as complex as the exchange gets. How you doing? How are you? Yep, no, no one answered the question. We just moved on. But what if, what if it began with, how are you going? And in the back of your mind, you've got this sense of, you know what? There's, God is so good. I'd love a chance to share it with this person. But you know what happens when you ask a question, hoping that they'll ask back, how are you doing? So that you can say, well, I'm doing awesome. What's the downside or the potential downside of that? Yeah, somebody could go away completely unheard because they realised all you wanted was to tell them your stuff. Um, but maybe as we do that, Jamie, how are you doing? Good, I'm going to launch into the story I just told you about the Powerball thing. And then Jamie maybe just needed to hear that story. But what if Jamie's response was, man, I am so exhausted. Now, when I launch into the 
but that's okay because God's been good to me story, um, that might not feel great. But what if the good things that God had been doing in my life actually equipped me to listen well, say, oh, I can empathise with that, or I, I can see how the goodness of God might be relevant to you, and I can maybe engage in a conversation which Jamie can get to, and I might never get to my story, probably shouldn't, but I can actually, informed by that, help Jamie see the goodness of God in his story. You see how that kind of works? It's kind of not rocket science, but when you're as bad as conversations as I am, you need a little bit of help figuring that stuff out. Uh, I wonder what it would be like if we are those people this week. Uh, if we are people who are so full of the joy of the Lord, who are so celebrating his goodness in our own life, that we are one, at an emotional, uh, healthy place to be able to listen to others and care for them at their point of need, without having to join in that whole, hey, no, what, you think you're a victim? You think your life's hard? Do you know how much hassle I have in my life, Jamie? Seriously, you've got nothing to worry about, mate. You should try being in my shoes for a while. Isn't that sometimes what it feels like? But maybe if we're so full of the joy of the Lord that that stuff isn't controlling me, I want Jamie to come to experience God's goodness too. And whether it comes by sharing my story or helping him see the goodness of God in his story, that's what God is going to do to change lives. Because everything that is good out of this life is in response to the goodness of God. Let's pray. God, when we are excited about how good you have been to us, it's hard not to be excited about sharing your goodness with others. And Lord, I don't know how many times in my life following Jesus, I've known that I should share about you more. I've kind of had a guilt that's come with that and a sense of, but how do I do it? Uh, but Lord, this takes away all of that um, me-centred thinking. When, when I get to tune into just how amazingly good you are, as I read the Bible and it's, it is the most beautiful story ever written, and when I understand how much you have done for us as humanity, and when I understand what, how much you've done for me as an individual, it's hard not to be moved and to uh, have joy and peace and hope in my heart when sometimes my circumstances are producing anxiety and depression and frustration and all kinds of addictions and obsessions. So I thank you for the way that your goodness transforms my experience of life. But I thank you too for the way your goodness and the way you've chosen to express it in my life is also part of your plan for how you're revealing yourself to others. Thanks for the way that I tell the story of your goodness uh, being different to the way others do it is actually part of your beautiful design for the church where every part in the body is different and does things in different ways but it's all been coordinated by the head, Jesus Christ. So God, give us that sense of having uh, your mercies in full view. Don't let us be distracted from your goodness. Help us to be transformed by that and help us to find ways of enabling the people around us to see your goodness as we speak from our own personal experience. Lord, this I pray for our deep joy, your great pleasure, and for the blessing of all those who see Jesus in us. Amen.